Welcome to the Woodshop Life podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. How you doing? Good. Good. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hello. Hi. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also want to thank our new patrons to our Patreon campaign, RJ Johnson and Antoine Poitra. I apologize if I'm butchering that. Uh, thank you for listening and for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife if you'd like to support the show. Let's dive right into it. Hui, what do you got for us? Okay, the first question that I have is from Winter Wolf Woodworking, and he's asking, I'm in the process of revamping and improving my shop, and the next step is dust collection. I have a one and a half horsepower Shop Fox dust collector moving about 1280 CFM of air. My problem is always with the friction loss in the flexible line. I plan to install six inch PVC on the wall and snub shorter flexible uh, sections to some of the bigger tools. My question is regarding the split offs. Are the stop gates enough to single out airflow to certain machines? And what is the best way to reduce this down to a hose for handheld power tools? I use blast gates. I believe that's what he's talking about when he says stop gates. But I use uh, blast gates that I bought on Amazon. They're these aluminum blast gates. And they definitely increase airflow by closing off the tools that you're not using. And if you're planning on installing hard PVC hose to your bigger tools, then you absolutely should get blast gates. The other thing that I would also recommend is if you're using PVC is making sure that you use the Ys that are as steep of an angle as possible, or excuse me, as shallow of an angle as possible. Uh, don't use anything that's a 90 degree bend. Use 45s to, to branch off to your uh, blast gates. And the other thing is you've got it right on the dot. Try to minimize your flexible hose as much as possible, unless you're just using one line, one flex hose at a time, kind of like what Guy does, then that's not necessary. But for sure, try to minimize your flex hose as much as possible. Now, if you're using PVC pipe, flex hose will not actually connect directly to PVC pipe. And also, and I don't know if it will necessarily connect to the blast gates. So you might have to get a special adapter because the inside diameter of four inch or six inch PVC is not compatible with the inside diameter of the flex hose. In other words, you're not going to be able to just wrap it around the PVC pipe. Uh, and on top of that, you're going to probably have to reduce down to, from six inches uh, to five inches or possibly four inches. So, uh, so you're going to have to try to find some adapters that are going to go from PVC to the flex hose. You cannot go directly from PVC to flex hose. And so just, just keep that in mind. Uh, and, and I know this because I've tried it before. Do you guys have any other tips that you could give to uh, Winter Wolf Woodworking to try to increase his airflow with, with what he has, a one and a half horsepower shot box dust collector? I typically, when I first started, I used PVC. I had the Harbor Freight set up and I had a four inch PVC along the wall. And then I dropped down to a blast gate and then from the blast gate to the to the plastic or to the rubber hose or plastic hose or whatever it's called, um, that blast gate took care of uh, connecting the hose to the main pipe. It was the the piece that would slide on the inside of the hose and on the inside of the PVC, and would allow me to connect the, the pieces. But I would stay as large as possible all the way to the blast gate. So you're going to go from from a, a six inch down to a four inch connector with the blast gate, um, and then down to your hose. Uh, just stay as large as possible up to you get to the tool, and that'll help with that. The the thing that I wanted to touch on, and you and maybe jumping ahead, is what is the best way to reduce this down mm. to a hose for handheld power tools? And am, am I jumping ahead? Because I can I can stop and come back to this. No, go ahead. That, I think that's good for us to discuss. Okay, in my opinion, you don't want to use your dust collector for hand tools because the power handheld power tools because it is a high volume, low pressure. Mm-hmm. versus the high pressure, low volume of like a shop vac. And you're not going to get the same amount of suction uh, mm-hmm. that you would. You've got more CFM, but less static pressure. Right. You want a higher static pressure on your handheld power tools. Yeah. So I would stick with some sort of shop vac or Festool or, or, or something like that for for the hand tools because it's it's not going to work as well and, and, and remove the dust like you want to keep it. That real fine dust is a problem. So 
stick right. to the the correct machine, such as a shop vac or something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm reading this question. It said, "I have a 1.5 horsepower shop Fox dust collector moving 1,280 cfm of air." Bullshit. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had something stuck in my throat there. I don't know where these manufacturers get these numbers from. 1,280 CFM of air on a 1.5 horsepower machine is unrealistic and not correct. I, I said, I don't know where they're getting from, getting that from. However, I can almost, I'm not familiar with that particular model. I haven't looked it up, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming there's a four inch port on the front of that, not six inch. Hmm. It could be like the Harbor Freight and have a, th- a splitter, a six inch or a five inch that yeah. has three, four ports coming off of it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The thing is, when you go down from, let's say, a six inch to a four inch, mm-hmm. you're immediately cutting your CFM. So if you take a 1280 CFM, whatever the number is, dust collector, and it's got a four inch port on the front and you put six inch pipe on it, it's not necessary. Just put four inch pipe on it. Mm-hmm. You've already restricted that CFM if it's only got four inch port on the dust collector. Right, right. I am not a fluid engineer. I don't even play one on TV or the internet. <laughs> but that is my understanding of it. You know, my dust collector is a three horsepower, it's a three phase, three horsepower machine. And I've got a hose on it that's maybe 10 feet long and on the end of that i'm getting about 700 cfm Mm -hmm. so i don't know where this one and a half horsepower is 1280 i think they rate the harbor freight at like 6 million cfm (laughs) 1550 yeah and it's it's totally wrong i think they're getting the cfm reading directly from the inlet and it's not accounting for all the other uh, because you, you're getting a lot of line loss in flex hose, and then you're also getting line loss even from rigid hose as well. Because yeah, it's friction. You're losing friction and static pressure as you increase more. If you as you would add more flex hose, correct. But but I guess I guess what I'm saying is you know when he's saying plan to install six inch PVC, that's fine, and I'd recommend PVC over flex hose. Mm-hmm. And the, the largest you can be for the longest run, however. Right. If the front of your machine only has a four-inch port on it, mm-hmm. don't bother with the six-inch PVC because right. you've already restricted the CFM at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just save yourself some money and get some four-inch DWV, which is drain waste, drain waste vent pipe, yep. which would be more than enough for that. And you'll save yourself a ton of money over six-inch PVC. The PVC pipe isn't expensive it's the fittings yes and when you start getting into the six inch fittings, some of these these y's and and elbows and things like that they 20 can bucks, be 15 bucks. 20 bucks yeah, yeah they're yep. pricey while the four inch dwv fittings are like five bucks yep and there's different types of pvc so and i'm not going to get into that here He's right about using Ys instead of Ts. It's yep. not a matter of the angle of sweep. It's just it's a Y or a T. Mm-hmm. So don't do a ninety degree elbow. Right. Use Ys if you're going to need to to get something down somewhere. Use an elbow and cap off or a, a Y and cap off the the straight piece mm-hmm. because that's more of a gentle curve. Mm-hmm. That that's the best piece of advice I can give. And looking at that. DC that he has. It has a six inch port on it that has two four inch inlets. Yeah. That said that you can remove it if you want a six inch. The reason why I would consider six inches for future proof, you don't want to, if you do get a a more powerful collector later, it's obviously set up for a six inch port now. So you got to think of future proofing. And if you go with a more uh, powerful unit later on. Yeah, that's true. You're right. You're right. I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're absolutely right, Sean. I agree with you. I, I didn't even think of that. So that's a good point. Stay as large as you can up until you get to the tool, mm-hmm. and then you should be good. Yeah. All right. So that's the uh, the first question here. And moving right along to Guy, what do you have for us? All right. This is from Paige. It says, hey, guys, love the show. I have a question about finishes. 
my generation millennial is into natural products. So I would like to have most and if not all products that I have lined up ready to be finished to be natural. I've thought about shellac, but for the projects that will be around alcohol, shellac is basically out of the picture. But I was wondering if I could put wax over that and that would help with the sealing or would I have to try something else? If I have to try something else, what would you suggest that's a natural sealer? Some of my projects include a tabletop and beer caddy. Have you ever heard of Safe Coat as a sealer? I don't know what Safe Coat is. Do you guys know what Safe Coat is? I don't know. I Googled it and I came up with 8,000 different meanings. <laughs> and I didn't have an email here to contact her. Sean, do you have an idea what Safe Coat means? Sure don't. Okay. Um, first of all, Paige, thank you for the question. And the millennials into natural products, I think that's something that goes or transcends any generation. Uh, we all want to use natural products for the most part. Mm-hmm. And here's my take on natural products. Everything in the world is a natural product. There is no such thing as an unnatural product, unless it comes from aliens. <laughs> Everything comes from Mother Earth. Plastic comes from Mother Earth, if you want to really boil it down to there. I'm not trying to be a smart ass, but I'm just, all, that's, all I'm trying to do is say that there is no such thing as a completely, there's no such thing as natural and unnatural. It's all natural. It's just how something is distilled or processed or whatever it is. That being said, projects shape for safe around alcohol, you can do a couple things. I mean, boiled linseed oil and wax is a very good way to do it. Boiled linseed oil, when it's cured properly, if you put it on there and let it dry for like 30 days, you know, you put a couple, you put a coat on, you let it dry for a day, you put another coat on, you let it dry for a day, you put another, you know, another coat on, put like two or three coats of boiled linseed oil, and then let it sit for like a month. I think you'd be surprised at how durable, not how durable a finish that is, but how good of a finish that is. And you can put wax over the top of it and you'll get a little bit of uh, water repellent. Yeah, resistance. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to say resistance, but it will repel water a little bit more. Yeah, you still yeah. have to be careful with it, you know, putting um, a glass on it because the just the humidity from the glass, you know, if it, or, or water gets on there, it can cause problems. But shellac is a is a natural product in that regard, where it's you know it comes from a bug, and you know I don't know we got to get that whole story. Mm-hmm. But shellac around alcohol is not necessarily a bad thing. You just have to make sure you clean it off afterwards. Right, right. You know, the alcohol has to sit on there for a while for it to dissolve. It's not like you get an alcohol spot on something uh, or alcohol on something that's shellac. It's instantly going to eat through the finish. That's not going to happen because it's it's going to take a while to, you know, hours, not days, but hours to get into it. Mm-hmm. But you can't put wax over it, and that would help with the sealing. Yeah, I just got to remember that the wax will have to be reapplied. Yep. 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 I mean, what are your guys' thoughts on the the whole natural products thing? I would have to know what Paige's products are that they have lined up to kind of get a better feel for what kind of finish that I would use. It says some of my projects include a tabletop and a beer caddy. Mm, that's okay. I guess I didn't read that far. But um I don't know if you go with a natural product, I'm guessing some sort of like tried and true varnish oil or something that uh, hard wax oil or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's easy to repair. You're still going to have to repair it versus something like shellac. Right. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of tough. If you don't go with something that's made for durability, I think that no matter what you pick, whether it's shellac or these natural products, you're going to have to repair them somehow. And maybe yeah. the natural products are going to be easier to repair than the shellac with wax over it. So that goes back to what I originally said at the beginning, and I wasn't trying to, again, not trying to be a smartass. What makes a product unnatural? I'm guessing they're talking about VOCs. VOC, yeah. And like you said earlier, what's in the finish, like, you know, it's all about being environmentally friendly. I would, I would, that's how I would take that. Yeah. Environmentally friendly. and, and, And again, I'm not trying to split hairs or parse words. But environmentally friendly and natural are two different things. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we can get stuck on the word or yeah, I, I, that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. 
we don't have much to go off of. I, I would assume that that's what they were talking about. That's the only thing I can All think right. of. All right, I dig it. I know very, very little about these like hard wax finishes and whatnot, but, uh, but I mean, they're, they're... did you go to that, um, Ruby on monocoat thing? That's yeah, but I, I still don't know <laughs> hardly anything about it. Uh, so I mean, <laughs> that was money well spent for them then, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I know that it's, it, it is a boiled linseed oil blend with other hardeners and resins, Osmo Poly X is another form of it of a hard wax oil finish. I think uh, Odie's oil, I I think is a hard wax finish, but I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, it is. is it okay? Yeah. So 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 you have a couple of different options there, but really any of these products that you're thinking that we're suggesting to you, they're going to have to be reapplied. The great thing about them is that mm -hmm. it's relatively easy to reapply them, and if you have any discoloration or abrasion or whatnot it's it's simply just uh, sanding that area the affected area and then reapplying the finish whether it be osmo poly x or rubio monocoat or or any of the other ones that we that we talked about something else that might be uh if you're looking at using something like shellac uh there's a product called royal lac from shellac finishes that and I'm just reading this from their website. It's it's basically the look and feel of shellac that has the durability of synthetic finishes like polyurethane, lacquer, urethane, so on and so forth. So maybe that's something to look into as it's well. It has the look or properties. Uh, it says uh, shellac based finish that looks and feels like shellac, but has the durability of synthetic finishes like polyurethane, lacquer, and urethane. What's it say to thin it with? It doesn't say to thin in this description. I imagine that it probably has it on the label, but it's not here on okay. their website. I don't know what the look and feel of shellac means. I guess maybe the warmth of shellac, you know, the, the fact that it, it kind of warms up the wood. I mean, whenever I use shellac yeah. on cherry, it kind of warms it up a little bit, gives it. I'm, I'm being, I'm being difficult tonight, aren't I? <laughs> no, it's good questions. <laughs> uh, hey, another, another thing that um, I looked into, uh, there's a company called Vermont Natural Coatings. Yeah. Uh, they're using poly whey. So in other words, it's basically the byproduct of what is used to make cheese is the cross-linking ingredient that they use to harden their finish. I don't want my project to smell like sour milk. <laughs> so anyway, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of quote unquote natural finishes, I guess what you would call sustainable, non-toxic, non -toxic, well. low VOC type products. And before a guy says it, non-toxic before it cures. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of things that you can look into there. I mean, we, we just mentioned a couple to you, boiled linseed oil and, and, and using a hard, uh, a wax over top. Yeah. And I've, and I've known, I've known people, actually, I think Mark Spagnuolo did a, a video on it where he, he took boiled linseed oil. I think it was boiled linseed oil as the base and then melted wax himself and put it in there and made his own hard wax oil. Yeah. You know, if you want it to smell nice, you can use, um, Beeswax? Beeswax. Thank you. Yeah. I, was, I was thinking honey wax. I'm like, that doesn't sound right. Uh, <laughs> beeswax yep. or carnauba wax. There's all kinds of different waxes you can use. Yeah. I looked into doing it myself once. I, I just didn't work it. Um, <laughs> but uh, a page, thank you for the question. It's a very good question. And especially in the, in the world of spraying, uh, having a low VOC or volatile organic compound is very desirable. So it's it's something on uh, everybody's minds, not just millennials, but on everybody's minds. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's something that we should all look into a little bit further. Yeah. So, all right, I'm done. Next question. <laughs> it's you, Sean. This one is from Thomas. I'm in the market for my first joiner. As usual, not a lot of money to spend. I'm looking for a used joiner and would like to know what I should be looking for, what I should avoid, and how to prioritize this list. The price range is up to 400. My project focus is furniture and jewelry box making. I have a small shop under 200 square feet. Love your podcast and really appreciate all the information and tips you guys share. Thanks, Thomas. In my opinion, obviously you're at the mercy of the market in your area when you're buying used, unless obviously you're, you're willing to travel. So you're going to have to start there and sort of get a feel for what's available or set up some of these websites. You can set up alerts that when certain words are posted, uh, it triggers an email to you so you can uh, sort of keep up to date on what's available in your market. For 400 I think you should be able to probably snag a six-inch joiner, uh, not a bench top six-inch joiner, but a floor standing unit. 
You may be able to find an eight inch jointer for this price, but it may also need some TLC, may have some rust and need some alignment and whatnot. Uh, but the six inch jointer will, will most obviously be in better shape. There is one thing to consider. Uh, now that you mentioned you have a smaller shop, you will probably need to look at the sizes of the machines to determine if you have a place for it. Uh, a lot of the six inch jointers will have shorter beds, uh, depending on how much you pay than your eight inch jointers. So that may play a role in your decision uh, as far as fitting it in your shop. As far as what you should look for and use machinery, I would also look at the overall condition of the machine. Is there any rust? How bad is it? Is it surface rust? Um, how much work you can have to put in to, to fix that? And how old is the machine? Visually inspect it, you know, looking at the photos on Craigslist or wherever. And, uh, and always ask the owner questions about the machine. Has anything been replaced? What condition are the blades in? Although that's not super important. Uh, and does it have any known issues and why are they selling? And hopefully they will be honest. Uh, but you always have to question everything. And if it passes the, the smell test, it'll fit in your shop, fits in your budget, take a trip, test the machine, listen for any noises uh, that are out of the ordinary and just see how it cuts. I used a six inch jointer for years and I ran it to boards that are wider than six inches, which was quite often. I would make a planer sled to flatten the boards. So if you can't swing an eight inch jointer, no biggie. Uh, there are ways around it and uh, you can utilize a six inch jointer for quite a few things. So that's what I think in a nutshell. Um, have any of you guys purchased a lot of uh, used machinery? And if so, you got any tips for Thomas? I've purchased several used jointers. And one of the things that I always made sure to look for is to make sure that there were actual spare parts available. Because some of the older machines, especially the clones, the copies of uh, like the Delta jointers, uh, don't actually have parts that are available if you had to replace anything um, and you had to find substitutes for it. One of the joiners that I had was an eight inch joiner. It was called a star joiner. I never heard that brand before, but basically it's a Grizzly or Delta copy. And um, thankfully when I bought it, uh, you know, I didn't do my research before, but when I bought it, thankfully I could use some of the Grizzly parts and some of the uh, yeah, some of the grizzly parts to replace uh, some of the parts that were missing on the joiner. Uh, but just make sure that whatever you decide to get, you can actually replace parts or get replacements for it, particularly blades. Make sure that there are blades available for it. Yeah, that's a good point about parts. Um, I, I have not bought a lot of used machinery, to be honest with you. But as far as what he's looking for, I think in a, a shop that's 200 square feet, I mean, that's that's small. That's small. That's a you know less than a, a a single car garage. I would probably look at a six inch joiner. Yeah. And there are even in my area where Craigslist is not really good for buying a lot of used stuff. There are always a good amount a good amount of six inch joiners out there. Hui's right. Stick with the name brand so you can find parts on it. You know, Grizzly Jet. There's a lot of jets out there. It mm -hmm. seems like I said a good six inch joiner can easily be gotten under $400. When you go to look at it, look at the rust on the bed, if rust, rust on the bed can be gotten rid of, but you'll want to make sure it's not pitted. Mm -hmm. Check the accuracy of the fence to see if it, you know, holds its 90 degree alignment when you slide it back and forth. If you have a, a straight edge to bring with you, Oh yeah. See if it's see if it's sagging because most of those are on dovetailed ways, and the older a joiner gets, the more the just like people, yep. things start to sag. Mm -hmm. So you may <laughs> have you may have to you may have to shim it up a little bit. That, that would be the only recommendations I can really think about other than what you guys have already talked about. Hey, so just just for giggles, I went on Facebook Marketplace and I just typed in jointer, and you're absolutely right. Those jet jointers, the blue one before uh, they were painted white, there's like three of them within a five hour drive of where I am, and all three of them are priced at four hundred dollars. There's a shop box yeah. one, a newer one, a six inch shop box one uh, in my search that was four fifty. So, so yeah, I definitely think I definitely think you could get a six inch, a good six inch used joiner for four hundred or or less. Oh yeah, yeah, easily. They're pretty available in my area. I know that doesn't necessarily help you, but. <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually looking at Facebook Marketplace as well. $400 for a Grizzly Joiner. Yep. There's a whole lot of them out there. Yeah. So, uh, yep. Good luck with that, Thomas. Uh, Hui, what do you have for us on your next question? All right. This question is from David. 
And he asks, I would like to purchase a new dado stack. I have an old craftsman set that is steel, not carbide tipped. What do you guys use? Can you recommend a brand that works for you? So I figure, you know, we'll just go ahead and talk about what we actually have and maybe some of the things that you should consider when when looking at a dado stack. I have an eight inch dado stack. And the reason why I have an eight inch dado stack, one, I, I kind of opted for, there are two sizes. There's commonly a six inch and an eight inch. I got the eight inch dado stack because, well, bigger is better. And you can't use a six inch on a saw stop. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Yeah, you can't use an eight, a six inch dado stack on a saw stop. So I had to get an eight inch, um, but I had an eight inch uh, dado stack before that. So thankfully, I was just using the same one that I had before. And what I have is uh, an infinity eight inch dado nader is I believe what it's called. They're priced around two hundred dollars. Uh, typically good dado stacks are going to be about that much. And, and the reason why they're that much is because you're, you've got two blades on the outside and you've got what these are called chipper blades on the inside. You probably already know this, David, but I'm just for our other listeners. And what I like about the infinity and why I bought the infinity is because the dado nader has their chippers have eight teeth as opposed to some other chippers from other brands that have either two or four. And that's one of the reasons why I went with an Infinity brand. They had more, the chippers had more teeth on them, more efficient cut. But my thought was uh, more teeth, the better. So Sean, what are you, what are you cutting with in, in your dado stack? And, and I believe you're going with an eight inch as well, right? Yeah. Uh, when I got the saw stop, I gave the other dado stack away with the old table saw because it was a six inch, but I run a, an eight inch Ashlan dado stack it's 90 bucks mm-hmm. uh works great um it has six teeth on the chipper oh really yeah it's for 90 bucks it's it's a it's a fantastic deal now i know that if you can spring it the freud has it the um the the adjustability what do they call it the dial a data or something dial a width dial a width or something like that yeah yeah if you can swing it that's that's really nice um, I've never used it, but there's no shims that are required in that, I, I'm guessing, hence the whole name dial a width, but it's on the list of, uh, of items that I'd love to purchase when my Oshlin goes bad. But I mean, pretty expensive though, isn't it? The- yeah, it's $235, give or take. <laughs> no, it's not, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. Yeah. The the other thing that to consider with the dial a width is that because it has the little dial on the outside, you do have to have a relatively long arbor. And so if you are limited on your arbor, that might not work. I don't know what kind of table saw you have. The dial a width will work on the saw stop. I know it will work on mine, but and yours, Sean, because we both have the same saw. But just just something to consider that you might be limited on uh What does it say? I mean, most arbors are the same same length. What is the max that you can do on the dial width? Up to 0. 0.906 inches. So, I mean, it's it's a pretty good. So it's probably the same as everything else, 13 sixteenths. Yeah. Or, yeah, 13 sixteenths. Yeah. And it actually has a hole in the center, an inset hole that you can- For that a nut? Arbor nut. Yeah. Okay. So it, it may okay. not be that big of an issue. Okay. Uh, but that is something to consider, like we said. But yeah, I've got the Ashland 90 bucks, worked great. No issues with it. Would love to get the the dial width and look at that. The dial width actually has a special wrench so that it can inset into that outside ring. There you go. So that's a non-issue. Yeah, I wouldn't think it would be an issue. I've had three dado stacks in my lifetime. The first one I had was a adjustable dado stack that they used to call it a wobble. Oh wow, dado stack data stack and this is way back in the day it worked really well with the exception of if you looked at the side view or the cross section of the data it left a rounded bottom it mm. wasn't perfectly flat uh, but it was cheap and i i used it for a long time then i moved up to a six inch freud and this was on my craftsman contractor saw that i had for 20 some years mm-hmm. and that worked fine uh it was a very good dado stack i actually had it sharpened probably about five years ago or six years ago and uh it worked great the only issue with it was i i, I i'm a, i'm actually i'm gonna jump forward here for a second and what i have now is the same one that you have we mm-hmm. i have the eight inch datanator and the reason I went with that is I wanted the extra height mm-hmm. that I didn't get on the six inch. 
there was a couple times, a couple projects where I wanted to do something and the six inch just wouldn't give me the depth of cut that I wanted. So I wanted to upgrade for to an eight inch. And when I started looking at them, um, you know, my, my first reaction was to get a forest. I think they call it a dado, maybe a dado king or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Then I looked at a lot of reviews. I talked to a couple people that had both the forest and people that had the infinity. And the reason I went with the infinity is that it doesn't leave little ears in the corners, in the corners of mm-hmm. your, of, of your dado, like everybody else does. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's a, it's better than the forest or better than the Freud or better than this or better than that. All I know is it didn't leave little ears on the bottom. It left it flat. And that's the reason I went with it. Mm-hmm. It's a great data stack. I'm really happy with it. The forest is also almost twice the cost of the infinity. It's not $400. The 8-inch Dado King saw blade set, two outside blades, six chippers, and Blade Runner carrying case is, well, without the carrying case, is 327 From where? Uh, Forest, from the website. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah it, it, did, it, didn't, it didn't used to be that much. They were all about the same price about five years ago when I bought it. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, my suggestion you know, is to take a look at your saw, see what it'll, it'll do. If you can have an eight-inch dado stack on your machine, most contractor saws won't be able to handle a, a, an eight-inch. If you can put an eight-inch on there, get an eight-inch. Both we and I have the the Infinity, and I, I highly recommend it. I've also heard very good things about the Freud. Yep. Both the dial width and their their regular dado stack. So. Other than the depth of cut, were you happy with the six inch? Could you say say that the only disadvantage to that is the depth of cut? Yeah, I was really happy with it. I mean, I had it, I bought it in 98. Yeah. 97 or 98 is when I bought that. And I had it for years. Worked fine. And Sean, you had a six inch data stack as well, right? Yeah, I had the Ashland six inch as well. Mm. I mean, I have zero complaints out of it. I mean, I don't know if what I'm missing out on. If, yeah, you know, I've never some Ashland blades. They've yeah. been very good. Yeah, I don't know what I'm, if I'm missing out on anything because I've never purchased the more expensive sets, but it does everything that I need. Cool. Well, great. I think we are now back to uh... we're back to me. Yeah, back to you guys. Woo-hoo! So this is from Joey from Winter Wolf Woodworking. And this is another finishing question. First, he says he loves the podcast. Joey's got good taste. (laughs) So he says, I know, and this is another finishing question. I know finishing has been covered a lot, but I can't recall if technique was ever covered. Also technique specific to the type of finish. Now, Joey, we'll we'll cover a couple things here, but we're not going to be able to cover everything. So um, I would love to spray everything, but as my shop is also my garage, that isn't always an option. What have you found easiest for applying different finishes? Natural bristle brushes, synthetic polyester bristle brushes, foam brushes, plain old wiping on with an old t-shirt, spit shine, etc. I've also noticed I'm finding myself putting two to three coats on and then sanding back instead of doing light sanding with every single coat. Seems to work. But am I just wasting finish due to impatience? And Guy always talks about, you know, using boiled linseed oil, poly, nap the wipe on varnish. I'd love to try that. How is it mixed? And what is the amount of each product in the final mixture? So let's talk about the first part of the question is, you know, technique specific to the type of finish. Myself, I like to keep it, if I'm not spraying, I want to keep it as simple as possible, man. And shellac is like if you if you know how if you are used to applying it and have applied a lot of it, it's like the most easiest foolproof. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say this: it's the second easiest, most foolproof finish you can put on something. And as far as you know, the application of it, it's wipe on, wipe off. Everything I do is a wipe on, wipe off. The only time I use something other than a paper towel (laughs) to apply finish is when I apply water-based polyurethane Mm -hmm. and I use a foam brush. Other than that, I don't use bristle brushes for anything. 
I don't use old T-shirts. I don't do any of that. I use a, a good uh, lint-free paper towel, usually the Viva, if you can still find them around is a good one to use. It doesn't have a bunch of crap on it. It, it works really, really well. I just triple it up, fold it in half, and that's what I use to apply shellac. Armor Seal, which is a wipe-on polyurethane, or the mixture of linseed oil, poly, and naphtha. I'm just using paper towels. That's it. As far as what the, you know, he says in here, his famous, my famous, no, I, I did not come up with this. That's Jeff Jewett came up with the boiled linseed oil, poly, naphtha wipe-on. I read about this stuff 20 years ago. It's a third, third, third. Real simple. Third boiled linseed oil, third polyurethane, not wipe on polyurethane, the regular full strength polyurethane, and naphtha. You can also use mineral spirits instead of naphtha. I use naphtha because it has uh, a little bit more drying agents in it and it helps it dry faster. But I just mix it up in a, in a, in a water bottle. That's it. <laughs> now, I know, Sean, you use some different types of methods to apply shellac and stuff like that, don't you? Yeah. Primarily, I started out using a hake brush, H-A-K-E. What's a hake brush? It's it's just a... Uh, Is it a type of brush or a type of bristle? Type of... I think it's the overall type of brush. I'm not. I, Paul Sellers turned me on to it back then, and I started using it. The only problem is, is it sheds, unless there's maybe higher quality ones. But I stopped using that, switched over to using a, a really nice purdy oxtail or oxtail ox hair brush uh, to apply the uh, the shellac and um, and sometimes varnishes. Uh, the ox hair brush is really amazing. If you but you got to take care of it, you got to clean it, brush it, and all that stuff, and it'll, you have to uh, brush it'll last the brush. you forever. Absolutely, you got to comb it comb it there we go uh, keep it clean comb it and um it'll last you forever it's it's worth spending you know 40 50 60 dollars on a nice brush because you can count on it that that's what i use primarily now as an ox hair brush for for the shellac i also have started using a, a product called stain pad to apply the uh, shellac as well as varnish and it's it's got a foam core but a microfiber outer layer and it is super super smooth on applying the finish it's because of the microfiber outer layer uh, so I use that for for shellac as well. Yeah, I should I, I I should mention that you know I don't use a paper towel for shellac. I use a a t shirt with uh, another piece of t shirt inside of it, and I use it like a like a little rubber thing. I don't use I don't use paper towel to do that. As far as uh, water based poly, I've used foam brushes, and I've also used a foam roller on large projects. Uh, foam roller works great. Uh, just make sure yeah. you don't put it on too thick. Watch out for runs and, and drips and stuff. But yeah, stain pad for the shellac and for the, the wiping varnish and brushes. And I think that's everything. Yeah. Joey's also asking, you know, I'm, I'm finding myself putting two or three coats on and then sanding back. You know, the, the first coat you put on typically just would just soaks it up. Yeah. Because it's really thirsty. Usually I'll put on two coats and then sand back. But then I'll sand back the coats in between because I'm only typically putting three to four coats of anything on, unless it's shellac, then I may be putting five or six, depending on how thin I lay them down. No, it's just the way I do it. Anyway, sorry. I sometimes use a microfiber cloth just because I have a whole bunch of them in my shop. It's what I use as a shop rag. And sometimes I'll use that to apply like a wipe on poly. When it comes to shellac, I'm using the same thing, the method and technique that you're using, Guy, which is just crumpled up t-shirt inside of another t-shirt uh, that's tied with a piece of twine at the top. And uh, and that's what I'm using as my as my rubber or dauber. When it comes to to doing those kinds of finishes, I'm not I'm not getting any fan. You know, I'm not fancy like uh, like Sean is with ox hair brushes that Mr. Ox hair. <laughs> what did what, what you do last night, Sean? Oh, I combed my ox hair brush. <laughs> Don't get jealous. You can buy your own ox hair. <laughs> I'm telling you, you get a nice brush. It'll take care of you too. Yeah. 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 I've heard uh, that. You know, I just keep it simple. And, and honestly, Tom, uh, if you've got if you've got something that that's working, keep with it. You know, don't don't you don't have to change too much if it's reliable. Keep using it. Yeah, and you're not wasting finish if it looks like after two coats that the surface is 
not evenly coated or covered with that previous coat. And you know I mean, in my opinion, I wait for the surface to get completely covered because the first two coats, it's, depending on how thick you apply it, it's going to absorb completely. Yeah. So you're not wasting any finish because you're yeah. going to have to sand it in between coats anyway. So don't worry about it. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, am I just wasting finish due to impatience? And then we, we talked about this last podcast. Don't be impatient when putting finish on. Mm-hmm. That's the point where you just want to slow everything down. Right. Is when you're doing the finish. Right. That's when you got to slow down, be mellow. <laughs> yep. Especially with sanding, with something like shellac where you can burn right through it or put the, the little hard crystallized things on there and it ends up yeah. scratching your finish, whatever those little things are called. The little um, crystallized things, yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> good. The little crystallized things. Yeah. The shellac nibs. Yeah. Yeah. That's just because your shellac isn't dry enough. If that's yeah, yep. building up on your sandpaper. Mm-hmm. So you got to wait, be patient. Yep. Otherwise, you're going to do a whole lot more sanding than you think. Yep. Awesome. Well, let's get the final question back around to me. This is from Brent Jarvis from Clean Cut Woodworking. Hi, fellows. I would normally say guys, but well, we know there's only one guy here. I wanted to know about gluing up a panel from several boards. When gluing up a panel, at what point would you consider using something such as a dowel or a domino to keep the boards aligned? Is there a certain thickness, length, or even width that you'd feel that there would be a need for adding this type for structural support to the glue up? I know that they help out a ton with alignment, but I'd like to know what your thoughts are on this subject. Thank you for your time, and please keep up the absolutely wonderful work y'all are doing on the podcast in your shops. This information y'all share is always spot on. Well, maybe wheeze and guys, but... Uh, this is my answer to this. Um, I'm new to the glue up alignment game. I recently in the past year or so got the domino and I really didn't even use it for alignment until probably the past month or two. Uh, for my shop, if I'm gluing up a board that's at least three quarters of an inch thick, I would use the domino for alignment. Anything thinner than that, you may run the risk of being able to see the dominoes. What is the word I'm looking for where you can see the domino, but it's right below the surface, like a, a, a shadow or yeah, like transfers. Yeah, projection. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. One of those two. Uh, as for the length, I personally wouldn't bother with the panel shorter than a foot or two uh, if I feel I have decent control over the glue up. Now, if the panel for some strange re- reason is giving me fits, uh, I can see using the domino to help aid in the alignment. But if that's the case, I would probably have a problem with either the jointed edges or the flatness of the boards, and I would fix it. As far as the feeling, feeling the need to add dominoes or dowels for structural support, I can't think of a time where it would be a requirement as the glue is plenty strong for, for the panel glue up. You know, I've not used it too many times, but if it's a large glue up, I will probably try to use the domino, but I'm going to have to punt this one to, to Guy and see what your opinion is on the matter. The question of uh, structural support, dowels, biscuits, dominoes, whatever you use, isn't really adding any structural strength to the glue up because it's a long grain to long grain and it's the glue is very strong at that point. However, if you're doing a wide panel, let's say, you know, a tabletop, that uh, kitchen table or a dining room table are typically 42 inches wide. You're usually dealing with, you know, a a glue up that's at least 42 inches wide, more than likely 45 to 48 inches wide, and you'll cut it down. That is a lot of surface there. And when you apply pressure to it, those boards can have a tendency to bow a little bit. And when I do something like that, where I've got a very wide glue up, I like to use the dominoes and the longer, the better because those things are tough as nails, man. And they help prevent the boards from bowing up as you're applying pressure. The other thing is, is if you're applying enough pressure on a clamp, and I see people cranking down on clamps and it's just like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? And it's because they're they're not doing a very good job of joining the boards. That's why they got to crank it down to get, I need 800 pounds of pressure. No, you don't. You just got to put them together. Anyways, when I use dominoes, I use biscuits quite a bit also. They, the, I use the dominoes when I'm concerned about the width of the panel. But if I just want to help with alignment so I don't have to be chasing a ten thousandths of an inch variance on the top so I don't have to clean it up later, I'm using biscuits. 
And that just helps with alignment. You don't have to use anything on a glue up that maybe is only, you know, 18 to 25 inches wide. And if it's just a small tabletop, I'm not using anything because I can control that. Yep. Because it's only like three boards. They're only a couple feet long and I can move the stuff around pretty quick. If I've got boards, you know, a six foot long, four foot wide glue up, man, there's a lot that can go wrong there. Mm-hmm. So I want to minimize or mitigate any issues I might have with the glue because glue ups are, are horrifying enough as it is. I want to help mitigate any problems that I have using an alignment tool. There you go. I'm done. One of the things, <laughs> one of the things that I always, before I, I have had, nothing more to say. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I have nothing more to say. Oh, you have nothing more to say. No. So yeah, the only other time- maybe, maybe I have one or two things to say. I got to edit all this out. Um, no, leave it in. Leave it in. It's funny. <laughs> I think it's funny. Yeah, I know you do. That's why you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I use the domino for the same thing. I'm not using it for structural support. I'm using it for alignment. And one of the things that I had issues with when I was gluing up boards before I had either a domino or a biscuit joiner was that when you started to just cr- lightly crank down on the clamps- the boards would slide and slip because you had glue on them. And and man, just the domino and the biscuits are just a great way to make sure that those things don't move when you're cranking down. That's about all I can add. That's it. Let me ask you guys a question about using the domino for alignment. What setting do you use for your domino? Do you make it an oversized slot? Do you make it dead nuts perfect? The adjustment on top of the domino. I'll, I'll make one the standard size, and then on the other side, I'll make it the middle or medium width. Same here. All right. Maybe I just had bad luck recently when I when I used the domino. The boards still weren't perfectly aligned on the top. Well, are you using – how are you referencing the domino? Are you using the fence and, do, and going off the top of the board? Are you laying it flat on your workbench and using the workbench top as your reference surface? I was using the fence and referencing the top of the board. Mm. Don't do it that way. Yeah. Clamp your board firmly to your workbench and use your, I actually like to use my table saw to do that. And I'll use my fence as the backer. I just move the fence over and I reference the bottom of my biscuit joiner or my domino off the table saw. Okay. You're, 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 when you when you go off the fence, you're adding another level there that you really don't need to. Yeah, a little bit of flex here and there could get everything on a line. Yeah, you really just have to make sure that the board is flat to whatever reference surface you, reference surface you have, and then just use that as the, the reference surface. Yep. That's a very common problem, Sean. Yeah, I've had that problem before as well. That's um, unfortunate that the the fence is the the culprit because. Everything else is, was exactly the same. You know, I just ran it through the, the planer and it was, you know, maybe it's not perfectly the, the same thickness either. So it's something I'm going to have to pay attention to next time because that, like I was saying, this is really new to me because I don't often use the this for alignment because I would just typically glue the boards up, run it through the drum sander. But I ran into a project recently that were 30 inch, 31 inches wide. 80 inches long. And these are pretty, pretty large tops. And so, you know, I used the domino to help with the alignment. And in the end, I still had a little bit of issue where it wasn't perfect. So I ended up scraping and, and sanding and stuff, but I'll definitely give this a try and see if that can, can fix it next time around. Yeah. Cool. All right. So, and finally, we're going to recommend some folks to follow on social media. Hui, who do you have for us? All right. I've got Lewis Fry Furniture. That's Lewis, L-O-U-I-S underscore Fry, F-R-Y underscore Furniture. And he is a furniture maker out of Texas. He makes amazing stuff. He uh, recently entered the uh, sideboard or uh, media center at the Texas Woodworking Festival, and it is absolutely gorgeous. These nice arched top panels that he had for the uh, doors, beautiful eight-drawer chest that he built, absolutely gorgeous. Really nice mixture of several different types of woods that he uses. So it's not just one wood that he normally uses. He uses a couple. Just gorgeous stuff. Beautiful work. Beautiful shape work that he does. Check him out. I think you'll like him. Shows a lot of process shots. How about you, Guy? Who do you got? I have Brian Noel from Bear Catwood. Oh, yeah. Cat with a K. 
Now, Brian's been around for a while. Uh, and he's like, he's a really good woodworker and built some really impressive stuff. But the thing that's cool about him, I mean, he, he builds really cool stuff. He teaches. He just opened up a, a little shop. And he also makes saws, very nice saws. I don't have one. Hand saws. Hand saws, yeah. Dovetail saws and carcass saws and things like that. He's offered to make me one before, and it's just, you know, dude, I, I really wouldn't use it. But uh, he did make me a really nice veneer saw. That was just gorgeous, and I, I, I almost hate to use it because it's so beautiful. But he has a, a lot of different things going on on his uh in his life and on his Instagram feed, and it's at Bearcat Wood, cat with a K. Um, so check him out. He's awesome. Yeah, for sure. So I have Duncan Gowdy at Duncan, G-O-W-D-Y, but we put all these links in the show notes, so uh, check that out if it didn't make any sense. But uh, Duncan is an artist and furniture maker over on Instagram, and he just makes some really, really beautiful stuff. Uh, it, it's it's art. It's exactly what what I, what I said. He's an artist, and what he produces deserves to be in museums or at least books or, or something because it's just really beautiful stuff. He has, like for instance, he has a, a really beautiful blanket chest uh, that has some some tree tree art in the center of it. He's extremely talented. the The feed is very inspirational. Um, so definitely scroll on over there, give him a follow, check out what, what some of the work he posts because he doesn't post too often, but when he does, it's, it's a treat. That's at Duncan Gowdy. Absolutely. Nice. I think that'll do it for the show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have questions for the show, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. We are one away from 100. Uh, it really helps in the search rankings. And, of course, we truly appreciate the, the feedback and the support. You can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. Uh, where can you be found, Hui? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com and at alabamawoodworker on my social media sites. Guy, how about you? I can be found typically in my shop or in my office. <laughs> and uh, I do sleep about six hours a night. There you have it. And also guyswoodshop.com. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. See you guys. See you.